Hello, everybody, and welcome to State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about the stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and on today's episode, we'll hear from golf blogger Jeff Shackelford, golf journalist and author John Huggan, and part-time player turned full-time architect and commentator Mike Clayton. They'll be discussing Tim Fincham's surprise announcement not to support the proposed ban on anchored putters. They'll also chat about Rory's struggles since switching to Nike and the new home of the Australian PGA Championship, which doesn't feature in Australia's top 100 courses. Now, unfortunately, I lost the first 40 seconds or so of this recording to a glitch in the system, but I did start by asking Jeff Shackelford if he was surprised by Fincham's announcement. Now, as I said, the first 40 seconds of his wisdom on that topic have been lost to the ether but we'll pick it up towards the end of his comments. So I, I say I'm surprised, but maybe I, I shouldn't say that because uh, uh, his track record does suggest that there's a, a blind spot here. But the other thing that really shocked me, of course, was um, hogging the, the, the Sunday spotlight of the match play. When he knew this would get attention, uh, he could have done this uh, any number of days. It would have uh, not taken away from the tournament uh, and the sponsors, something he absolutely hates. Uh, when that happens. That is, to me, Shaq, that's almost the most bizarre thing about it all. Uh, Accenture couldn't have been happier. And this is the second time he's done it to them because, of course, you had the Woods apology a couple of years ago, which was also in the middle of the match play. That's right. And NBC, I even sensed, was uh, was not too happy about it um, uh, because he came in right at yeah, the fifth hole of a match. It's now only an 18-hole match, so uh, I don't even know what happened for about a three-hole stretch because I was paying attention to this, and he was doing a press conference over on Golf Channel that you could watch and all the stuff going on, and, and uh, this could have easily been done on a Monday, uh, any other day, really, or the snow day in Tucson, uh, on down the line. And and so that that's where I've always gotten stuck on this whole issue is, is, is I can make a very strong case that he was just doing this to appease certain players, to avoid a lawsuit, uh, and for for a change, listening to his players. The problem I have, though, with that theory is then why go high profile with mm-hmm. it? High, why put yourself out there uh, saying ridiculous things? I mean, he just made some absurd assertions on that telecast. Why put yourself on the record uh, in such a high profile way? I can understand meeting with the writers in the press center. But but taking that case to TV where he really threw out the whoppers um, was just a, a huge blunder. And of course, he's been uh, he's been hammered from pillar to post by some pretty observant and uh, astute golf writers who've picked apart his statement. Huggy, a were you surprised? And B, is there something more going on here? I'm thinking to myself, this seems very unfincham like he is a very savvy political operator. Are we missing something that he's seeing here? He's a very clever man, too clever to fall for some of the simple mistakes that Shaq's outlining there in a lot of ways, isn't he? That's the weird part of it all. Plus, another point about the fact that he went on television last week is that um, the the tournament that was going on is not actually a PGA Tour event. Mm. So you have to wonder what the heads of the Federation of Tours or whatever they call themselves who run the thing were thinking about this arrogant so-and-so going on in the middle of their tournament to conduct PGA Tour business. You only need to look at their response to the uh, the anti-anchoring stance he took, I think, to get a sense of what they might have thought. Well, every- that's right. I mean, they've, they've done a very good job of isolating uh, Mr. Finch. I mean, you know, obviously, reading between the lines, you have to think that um, there was a few quiet smiles and a few quiet offices um, in London, Australia, yeah. South Africa, Asia, all the LPGA, the LET, just about everybody who's come out 
and backed the, the RNA and the USG on this. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be wary that, about being but, too smug, Huggy. He's a very, very savvy operator. I'd be he wondering. He is. Now, that's the thing about this that gets me. I'm not smart enough. I'm prepared to admit here and now that Tim Fincham's got a far higher IQ than I have, and I'm trying to figure out what he's got going on behind the scenes here because he's too smart to have, as Jeff just pointed out, to have gone on and basically talked rubbish. I mean, it was just factually incorrect stuff. Now, he's that's unheard of for this guy. Mm. I mean, he's not stupid. He's far from stupid. So t- there's got to be something going on. I mean, I'm cynical enough to think that he's up to something. Mm. But for the life of me, I can't think what it is. So <laughs> smarter minds than mine will have to apply themselves to that, I think. Indeed. Clades, what what's your take? I mean, as a as a player, I don't know whether you get I know you don't you don't play much these days and the, the playing you do do is limited to here in Australia with the with the over fifties, but is there any sort of chatter? Can you see why, from the player's point of view, he might be putting a certain stance even though he doesn't think it's got a chance to fly? It almost looked like Fincham wants his opposition to the band to fail. That's almost what he set himself up for, and you, you get the sense it may be deliberate. What's the sense from the players, though, Clates? What would they be saying to him, do you think, that might have made him do that? I don't know. Maybe he thinks he needs to be seen to be out there supporting <laughs> Tim Clark and Bradley and those guys. But, I mean, I'm kind of with Huggy. I'm at a loss to why he would do it because he would have to know that the Europeans and the Australians and the South Africans are going to go against him. He's certainly isolated himself from everyone in the world of golf because of 10 or 15 players. I just don't understand why he's doing it. He must have known that prior to, though, Clates, wouldn't he? Surely. I mean, the, the USGA would have known he was going to do it, which is also interesting. They must have known for some time. They, you know, they announced this in November last year, but, boy, we all know they must have been talking about it for a long time before that in the inner sanctum. The tour has a, a seat at the table, as... as um, Frank Hannigan wrote in his letter to your website there last week, Shaq. So everyone must have known. It, it makes it seem to me, Clates, like it's almost deliberate. I mean, he would have known. Surely the tours must have discussed it at various Federation meetings and phone hookups over the time. He must have known that he was going to be on his own with this. I guess, yeah. So as we all say, why is he doing it? I mean, it's a mystery to me why he's doing it and who knows where it goes. I mean, I, I mean the critical thing now is that the USGA and the RNA don't choke and fall into his trap and th- think that these guys are more important than the decision they made. Okay. I mean, I, you assume that the USGA and the RNA aren't going to do that and they'll go ahead with it and Fincham's isolated, the tours go ahead with it and, you know, it's... There is uh, one possibility here. Maybe the, the other tours have been... You know, this is just a big bully getting these come up in. So maybe they've been lying to him behind the scenes. Maybe they've said to him, "Oh yeah, Tim, we're with you on this. We'll be, we'll back you all the way." And they let him go on television, and then said, "Right, we're going to do the opposite." Who knows? I think Huggy has a great point there because the, the the Sunshine Tour, the way they issued their uh, uh, their statement was very aggressive, and I think that and there certainly is no uh, a love loss there. They've had that issue with that non-WGC, WGC event yeah. uh, and Ernie Els and the President's Cup and all the politics of that. Uh, and they were, I think they almost seemed uh, delighted to be able to, uh, to kind of stick it to him. Mm. This has really got nothing to do with anchoring, has it? 
Shaq, at the end of the it, day, it may just be a political squabble. It's all about it's all about the politics, isn't it, and kind of the future of the game. It always struck me we'd talk about bifurcation. We've talked about it on this show plenty of times. Separate rules for amateurs and professionals. I always thought it would work the reverse way that the governing bodies would make some rules that reigned in the amateurs. Is this a peak, Shaq, into how bifurcation actually might work? In that the governing bodies would say, you know, uh, these are going to be the rules for the pros, and the pros say, well, we're not playing by them. It's potentially chaotic, isn't it? What 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 Finch? Well, it is, here? and it's not the way I. Uh, we certainly the three of or the four of us would have envisioned um, in the discussions we've had prior to this, because we've always envisioned it as a way to uh, protect the amateur from rules that are really designed just for about a thousand golfers on the planet. And here we have the opposite scenario, where the the PGA Tour is trying to protect. Uh, their players um, from from making the game uh, from from rewarding skill more and making the game a little bit more demanding for them, and so it it has my head spinning a little bit as to how we 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 went from talking about bifurcation the way we did, uh, which was to try and ensure that that uh, today's players play a game that's similar to a game of the past in the sense of of skill being rewarded, to one where uh, we are trying to protect a very small group of people who use a method that is uh, uh, really counter to to what we've always known as a stroke. So it's a it's a very strange situation. And and then I would also throw in that that Fincham has made some comments uh, of late that would suggest he understands the distance debate a lot better than he's let on in the past, and that he um, supports the idea potentially of a ball rollback because he is now seeing firsthand the issues that come with this distance chase. Uh, he's running out of venues to go to uh, the match play. You know, they, they really have some, some issues with trying to find a course uh, in part because a lot of places are just too short. And um, so he finally is actually encountering some of these, these issues that come with distance. Um, so the whole thing is is uh, it's it's complicated and obviously though it's it's quite fascinating too. Yeah, uh, Huggy, how did you always see bifurcation working? The re- reverse of what we've seen here, and what does this tell us about how we might go forward? Those who propose the notion of bifurcation, do we need to handle it or need to rethink uh, how we approach it? Perhaps because it seems pretty obvious that you know the amateur governing bodies are not going to be able to just um, propose this is what we're going to do and necessarily have the professional bodies accepted because I know the other tours around the world have been against Fincham on this, but he has set a precedent, hasn't he? Now any professional tour can take any rule they don't like and say, well, hang on a minute, the US tour have said that they don't like the, the anchoring ban, we don't like this one. So it sets a dangerous precedent, doesn't it? Well, it, this is a real. This is kind of like a test case. If I was a, hmm. the the RNA and the and the USG, I'd be thinking to myself. I mean, by the way, they've they've gone away with murder in this whole thing. I mean, this rule that they've come up with is a complete dog's breakfast, as far as I can see. I mean, what they they should have done if they were if they've got a problem with this anchoring putting, like they should just ban the whole thing, ban the clubs, ban the lot, hmm. get rid of it, all of it, go the whole way, and then see what happens after that. I mean. They've, to me, they've, they've gone, you know, they've near the one thing nor the other. I mean, what, what, why is Matt Kutcher's putting stroke okay and and Tim Clark's isn't? And I mean, I just don't get it. And plus, how are they ever going to police this? Mm. I mean, how how are the rules officials ever going to decide whether somebody's anchoring or not? Especially on windy days. I mean, it just it's it beggars belief to me that the and the, as I say, the RNA and the USG have gotten away with murder because the attention has gone to Fincham, quite rightly, but they are in the background having. 
not done a very good job on this, I don't think. And mm. I think that they should look at the whole thing again. I think they should start over and ban everything. That may, that may actually be the upshot. Well, who knows? Maybe they're in collusion, Huggy Fincham and the, the governing bodies and well, make a mess of it so you can come out and announce something new. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's so many conspiracy theories you can come up with because, as we've just touched on, I mean, it it beggars belief what Fincham's just done and it's just inconsistent with everything that he's done over the course of his career and it's... It makes you suspicious, there's no doubt. Something very, very smelly is going on in the background, no doubt about it. Uh, Clayton, I wanted to ask you about this. Last year, Shaq went to the USGA annual meeting and he came back with some truly remarkable quotes from Glenn Nager about the USGA not being afraid of legal action. Really almost sounded, and I remember Shaq and I spoke about it at the time, and it didn't get much press anywhere else. It really sounded like kind of fighting words like, you know, Nager was going to be the USGA president prepared to take on you know, the manufacturers, be it about the ball or drivers, he wasn't specific about that sort of stuff. Do you get a sense that there's a bigger end game here, Clates, with all this bizarreness over anchored putting, which really I think everyone agrees is the least it's an issue in golf, but it's one of the one of the smallest issues in the game when you look at everything else. Do you get a sense there might be an end game here that's much bigger than anchored putting? Well the one person I know in Australia who would know what's going on told me at the Australian Open last year that they wanted to get the putter done by 216 and then address the ball and get that done by 220. Wow. So I think that's, I hope that's what their end game is. I mean, at some point it has to be because I think these companies have, I don't think, tightness to bringing out a driver or Callaway or Ping or whoever and then setting about inventing the next one. I think they're probably 10 years down the track with what they're going to roll out. They're, you know, they their profit is based on rolling out new clubs every six months and every year and new balls every six months and every year. And I, my bet is that they're a long way down the track with balls that can go a lot further than they can go now. But they, of course, can't release them because they can't be seen to be sticking 40 yards on Bubba Watson's drive. But they can leak it out at five or ten yards a year and, no one, and, and think that no one will notice. So, you know, I don't trust them as far as I could throw them. They're, they're, they're worse than cigarette companies, I think. But while well, they're not worse than cigarette companies, you know it's worse than them. But, you know, I'm cynical enough to think that these guys have got a long-term plan to make the ball go further and they can make it go further and they don't care about the game or the courses. And, and it's not their job to care about the game or the courses. No, that's true. But, that's- but by 220, my hope is that the people whose job it is to run the game and control the equipment and protect the courses do, do their job. Mm. So you're right. I think the Lowen Putter is a small and largely irrelevant part of the debate, but I think they'll, they'll be looking to see how this goes before they tackle the, the, the much more important question. Is it just me or, or does, is everybody else here of this, the same perplexed by this that the authorities and the equipment companies haven't looked at how participation levels in the game are dropping you know year by year mm-hmm. and that the game that they're producing is less and less attractive to people and that something must be wrong with it I'm, you know i'm flummoxed by it huggy i do tend to think that there's other issues outside of just the the way the game is played and I, predominantly i suspect it's time is the biggest one is the- well i agree and that, but that's i mean that's another thing that fincham's done nothing about is a slow play on the tour no that's absolutely you know, true it's, it's, it's a puzzlement to me. But just just on the ball, and this is what strikes me, I'll get the thoughts of all three of you on this, and it's always struck me. And Clates, you and I have discussed this before. There's a precedent for the changing of the ball when we went to the bigger 
bigger ball in the early 80s. And it was pretty seamless, and I'll get you to recount your experience of that at the time. But it seems to me, I think we probably all feel some animosity towards the manufacturers in this department about the distance the ball goes and whatnot. But shouldn't we all be on the same page? There's a common thing here. The one piece of equipment that you cannot play this game without, and it's the only one, is the golf ball. Would it not be difficult to make a case that doing anything with the golf ball will actually lead people to leave the game? Because I mean, you could say, you know, big-headed drivers, they're easier to hit. And that's true, you know, and if people can't hit them, maybe they, they won't play golf. But if the ball goes 10% less for everybody, it's the only piece of equipment that everybody has to use. Shaq, am I making my point sensibly there? But would it be difficult legally for the manufacturers to make the case that, you know, um, that, that, would be, that that's going to drive people out of the game when it's the only piece of equipment that you must use? Uh I I don't know about the legal case, um, but yes, uh, they will they will not have any trouble making that argument because uh, the average golfer is is uh, addicted to distance, isn't hasn't really given this a whole lot of thought. Um, yeah, I, I'll give you an example. I asked a player um, who who we all really like and know at Riviera, uh, who's very uh, sharp, and he he. Uh, he loves horses and uh, horse racing, so that should give you an idea. And I said, um, "What would you think about a a ball rollback?" And he said, "No, the, uh, the the he gave me a horse racing analogy. The horse is out of the barn on that one." And and then I said, "Well, what if it was just what if it was ten percent? What if you went from from uh, you know three hundred to two seventy ish?" Oh well, yeah. In that case, that's not that big of a deal. But they all come back with, "Well, people pay to watch us hit it a long way." Uh, and it's and it's it's a knee jerk reaction, but of course, as we we know, um, when you dig a little bit deeper, ninety nine out of hundred fans can't can't tell the difference between a three hundred yard drive and a two hundred seventy yard drive. So, the problem is that that making the case, as we've seen with anchoring, is very difficult, uh, no matter how well you lay out your case. Um, and so, uh, I I don't know the legal uh, ramifications, but. There, I, I would say though that all, all of these people are aware there are problems. Mm. The, the 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 thing is though they're not really sure how to solve it. And I've just written a column for for Golf World on the pace of play issue, uh, or actually just kind of the general issues with the game. And this will appear in a couple weeks. But um, you know, really, as much as I would love to see the ball dealt with, the thing that is causing this ridiculous amount of slow play in the game, but especially on the tour, but also on the everyday. Uh, level uh, is and and issue with cost and really the uh, the issue with anchoring. I have some great comments from Mike Davis in this column about uh, anchoring uh, is green speed. Every single one of these things goes back to greens being faster and faster and faster. And and I mean you you watch these guys now they mark everything. Riviera's greens were nearly 13 on the stint meter. They mark the 18 inches and I don't blame them. They're playing for a lot of money. But Bob Estes made a great point to me. He said you know you. That adds that adds two minutes per hole per group. Over eighteen holes, that's at least an extra half hour. Mm. And um, and then you get into the cost. We all know about cost issues with with faster greens. And really, this anchoring thing is mostly an American phenomenon. And where what what has America uh, done for the game? Uh, why it's you know trying to export greens that are 
that are 10 and above on the stint meter. Are you trying to bait Huggy with a question like that? What has America done for the game? Yeah, Let's that was a check. mistake. Yeah, don't, don't, just don't. We've got it. limited time here, limited time. Clates, well, I'm a big fan of golf carts, as you know. So. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. <laughs> Clates, what happened when they went to the bigger ball in the early 80s? It wasn't catastrophic, was it? I mean, which would be a similar thing to what we're talking about here. If we were to go to a ball that was different in some way, i.e. shorter, uh, the transition was pretty seamless, wasn't it? I don't remember it much to bait at all. Peter Thompson was asking why we were becoming an appendage of America, <laughs> which was a reasonable question. Why are we just blindly following America? But the reality of what happened to the tours was that the big ball came in in Britain in, with the opening in 74 and on the tour a couple of years later. But the, the reality was changing to that ball, which required you to hit the ball better. Perhaps it was easier to use around the green, but it demanded better striking was that within four years they produced Ballesteros, Langefeldo, Lyle, Woosner, Malazabal, you know, Norman in Australia, Nick Price. So it certainly benefited the, the players who didn't come from America. It brought them up to scratch in terms of ball striking. Mm. So it was a huge benefit for the tours outside of America because it produced that group of players that wouldn't have come out of, I think, playing with a small ball. Did- um, but, you know, we switched, I think, in Australia. In the amateur game, we switched in the early 80s, and there was, there was no debate amongst the average amateur player. I doubt anyone even noticed that it went a little shorter because most amateurs miss it every shot anyway. So how, how would they know how much they're losing? What 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 was the on the ground experience there, Clates? You would have been playing pretty high level amateur golf around that time. What was the switchover like? Were most of the top amateurs did they just automatically go to that ball once they got to a certain level of play? You know, the very low single figures, or or uh, knowing that if you wanted to turn pro, that's what you'd eventually be using. And also for those who weren't going to turn pro, just wanting to play what the professionals did play at the time. Was there was that element there? Would that be replicated? Do you think? I guess is what I'm asking. If we change the ball, well, that was there. I mean, I was the for, uh, and then I won the 1978 Australian Amateur, and I was the only player in the field using a big ball because I decided earlier in that year that if I was going to be a pro, I was going to have to learn to use the ball. So I just changed and never hit a small ball again. And everyone said, well, "Why are you using a big ball? It's costing you 25 yards." Well, I said, "Well, you know, it's a without knowing it." I said, "Well, there's a bigger picture here." And so, and I won the tournament using the big ball, and it just kind of morphed into everyone's game. I mean, there was a time when we would play windy courses. I remember switching from a big ball to a small ball if you were playing, sorry, from a big ball to a small ball if you were playing into the wind. That went on for a, well, I did that once and the small went over the green. I made seven and never did it again. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> you know, I don't remember there being much debate. You know, within six months, Grady and Senior had turned pro. They were playing the big ball. We just all kind of changed within a year and, that was what happened because if we wanted to play in the the state opens, the tour had switched. So we had to play the big ball in the state opens by 1979. So that was just the end of it, really. Yeah. Huggy, could it be so seamless to change the ball again or is this issue too much? Do you think we'd have a lot more? And, of course, there are a lot more people play the game these days than then too. They're much more savvy and have access to a lot more information via the internet. Is it possible we could have a, a ball change and have it be quite so seamless as what Clates has just outlined there back then? Yeah. I'm interested in how in Mike's assertion that it was seamless the, the the switch from small ball to big ball that <clears throat> that wasn't quite my experience and when I, back in you know thirty odd years ago when I was playing a decent level of amateur game at the European 
uh, team championships at St Andrews in 1981, there was a huge fallout in the Irish team um, between Ronan Rafferty and his foursomes partner. Uh, Ronan wanted to play with the big ball and his foursomes partner wanted to play with the small ball. And Joe Carr, the famous legendary Irish amateur who was the non-playing captain of the Irish team, ordered Ronan to play the small ball uh, on the first day of the, the tournament. And he got on the tee... And he was hitting the tee shot off the first, and he and he whipped out a big ball and smacked it up the middle, and the, the, everybody went ballistic. Well, Joe Carr certainly went ballistic, and Ronan was dropped for the next day. So it, it wasn't quite as seamless. <laughs> Good stuff. I mean, Ronan and Ronan was about the best player in amateur in Europe at the time. Mm. So that's uh, it was stuff. a big deal. And so there was plenty of stuff going on, you know, back and forth between guys like Mike, who were going to t- obviously going to turn pro as Ronan was. And the guy he was actually playing with was a career amateur. He's still an amateur. So there was a difference of opinion, you know, a very strong difference of opinion going on between the young guys who were going to turn pro and the, and the older guys, the career amateurs, who, who had no intention of turning pro. But obviously, even an amateur, as amateur golf has evolved, the, the, the career amateur doesn't exist anymore, really. So it's, um, it's that, that's probably why the, the argument went away eventually. But... Uh, it certainly wasn't seamless in my part of the world, that's for sure. I would have loved to have been there for that, Huggy. That's fabulous stuff. You don't, you don't hear yeah, enough it was, of that sort it, of it thing. It's interesting stuff, no doubt about that. Joe Carr was a formidable figure, but uh, Ronan was a cocky young devil and, and enormously talented and by far the best player in the team. Yeah. And, uh, you know, who knows? you can take both sides in the argument, I yeah, suppose. Of course. Well, the, the Irish are known as wonderful, humorous people, Huggy, and they are, but when they lose their um, temper, they can be pretty fiery, can't they? Well, so they would have been. And it's, it, it was a North v South battle as well. <laughs> oh, Ronan, Ronan was from Ulster, and oh, his partner was from South. So there you that's, go. Uh, that's war waiting yeah. to happen. Shaq. Rod, Rod, can I make a point here um, on, this, on this notion of whether this could be done with the ball? I would like to disagree with Huggy. On uh, and I what? read this in his yeah I know I read this in his column and I I would have agreed with it a few weeks ago, but I I'm going to actually make the point I believe that the the USGA I don't know how much the RNA really deserves credit but the USGA I'm starting to believe has handled this brilliantly and let me let me explain why and why it actually gives me some hope that should they try to do the ball that maybe they think this through a little bit more than we think. And, and the, the first point is on the, the length of the putter uh, issue and whether they should have just simply banned that. And I, I believe that was the right thing to do all along. It turns out that had they done that, that would give somebody like Tim Clark uh, a case for a lawsuit. The way they've gone about this, he now simply has to try to convince a jury that his livelihood will be uh, taken away from him even though he can use the same grip, same putter, he just has to move it an inch away from his body. No rational, sane uh, jury in the world is going to listen to that and get all weepy and sad. So they thought that through. They, they, they went through all the scenarios and they came up with this, this uh, concept and, and wording of the ruling the way they did. And it's not perfect, but I, I'm actually quite impressed by that. The second thing is they have been very quiet in this comment period, and there's a reason for that, and there's a reason they didn't provide a lot of data to make their case. They would have embarrassed players. This would have turned into a whole drama, and it already has to some extent. Look at Keegan Bradley hearing, you know, I think he's hearing voices. I really don't know where <laughs> he's hearing these calls of being a cheater. But they were they clearly were aware that this could could be the case, and so they've been very quiet during the comment period. 
they 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 issued a press release right away when he claimed to have been called a cheater. They've been, I think, very shrewd in the way they've handled this, and it actually gives me uh, some hope. Should they try to undertake the ball, because I think they've thought this through more than we've probably realized. The the, the Fincham thing was. Um, I think ultimately going to turn out to be a gift. I think he's made them a bit of a victim um, to a lot of very core golfer types who, who really follow this stuff. And, um, and I think the, the whining and the lack of a, of a good case by the, uh, the anchors in, in rebuttal and this no competitive advantage crap, um, I think it, it, this thing is going to sail right through. And I think it's going to strengthen them um, when you know it was looking like this might have weakened the governing bodies. But I think the uh, the end result will be the opposite. Yeah. I, I tend to agree, Shaq. I think I think the USGA in particular, not so much the RNA, but the USGA are a far more politically savvy organisation than they were ten years ago. And to me, Mike mm-hmm. Davis and in particular Glenn Nager, listening to the things he said last year when you recorded his speech there at the annual, gave me some heart, heart and some hope. They're not foolish, but. They seem to me like they're up for the fight, and they almost announced that last year. And as I said, nobody picked up on it. You and I discussed it, but it wasn't widely discussed. But they almost said, didn't they, outright, you know, we're up for the fight. It's not going to be a, a yeah. quick one, and it's not going to be a well, knockout blow, but it's going to be we're up for it. That's what they seem to say. Is it, is, it seems to me, are they just kind of making the best of a bad job here? Because, right? I mean, Tim Clark yeah. and his buddies are still going to be able to use those awful golf clubs, if you can call them golf clubs. So we're still stuck with that. I mean, nothing, that hasn't well, gone but, away. But so are you they just see kind a, of making the best of it, you know? You could see a scenario where if they eliminate anchoring uh, in five years, everybody's going to say, well, why do we even have long putters? Mm-hmm. And then they could move to, to eliminate the long putter then. Well, Indeed we do. I'd like to think so, but I mean, yeah, that it really- may not happen that way, but. Don't you get the yeah. sense, though, Huggy, that maybe, and I'll get Clates' thoughts on this too, maybe what they're actually trying to do, this this modern incarnation of the USGA, and I would put it at the feet of Mike Davis in particular, who's shown some savvy in lots of areas, not the least of being course setups, they're trying to undo a couple of decades of very serious mistakes. And a bit like Augusta National, they can't just come out and say our predecessors were a bit dopey and made a bunch of mistakes. They need to try and slowly but surely uh, put things right. That's the sense that I get, and that that's not going to happen overnight. But that that's what they're trying to do. I, I'd love to think that that's true. I mean, I'm you know, no one would be happier than me if it was uh, five years from now they're able, they're able to, as you say, you know, go after the, the, the actual clubs rather than just this the anchoring business. What do you reckon, Clay? So, do, do you see enough in what Mike Davis has said, and you know, and it's certainly with these course setups, he's done some interesting and in, uh, things, and not all of them have been perfect or whatever. But he's done some. Interesting, could we actually be dealing with the first visionary USGA, Clay? Oh, we hope so. I mean, looking at Marion last year, I'm not sure about that, but um, I think, you know, when it comes to course setups, I think this year is not going to be particularly interesting at all at Marion, but next year at Pinehurst is going to be the critical open where they they hopefully play the course as we played it last year with no rough and big wide fairways and people will see how much more interesting the game is. So there'll be a great contrast between this year's US Open and next year's US Open. But isn't that the genius of Davis Clates? He's going to he, he take it to Marion, make it an old-fashioned US Open, let everybody go, that was horrible and terrible, and then the next year be able to trumpet, this is what golf really should look like. Do we really give him credit for playing that? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think uh, I think the Merriam decision was made before he got there. In fairness, I actually wrote that theory a couple of months ago, and <laughs> we, we'll be arguing 
giving them too much credit. But the, the, Mike's right. The the US Open this year is going to be an absolute well, horror well, show. We saw the photos that Clates took last year. Of course, it's a horror. It's a horror show already, and they haven't really even started yet, have they? So um, it will be terrible. Look, enough about all that, gents. It's fascinating stuff. Well, I'm, I'm intrigued to watch this unfold. Not about the putters, but about the politics that's going on. It feels to me, Huggy, like big things are happening in the game. Do you get that sense? I hope so. Yes, and uh, I, I mean, I've got. Joking apart about Mike Davis, I, I've got a lot of time for Mike Davis. I think he's a very, very smart individual, and you're right in the sense that he, he's he's not able to do everything that he wants to do overnight. And maybe he's just he knows the insides of the political insides of the USJ far better than any of us do. And maybe this is the only way to get it done. Yeah. Who knows? Fincham may well have met his match. It will be fascinating to watch it unfold. Clates, I want to come to you about the next thing we wanted to talk about fairly briefly, but of course it is one that's got uh, got plenty of attention. Rory McIlroy, I think he's 17 over par for 80 holes or something crazy in 2013, of course, with an all-new bag of clubs and ball. What's your take on McIlroy and that bizarre walk-off in Florida last week where he sort of walked off saying you know, he wasn't right mentally and then an hour later had a horrendous wisdom tooth attack? Tell me what you think about Rory and he switched to Nike. Well, the walk-off was silly, and I bet he wished he'd played out the back nine or the, or the front nine, in the case it was. Uh, the, the game is littered with stories of players who've changed clubs and gone down, as Johnny Miller said when he switched from McGregor to Wilson, two notches, Payne Stewart, uh, Ian Woosnam, Matt Goggin, the Australian. And there were lots of guys who've changed clubs for money, and it, it, it hasn't been a good choice. I think that you know, Rory had that bad run through the middle of last year where he was missing cuts and playing poorly and he was doing it with tightless clubs so perhaps it's not the clubs but you know that he's hit one shot at least this year where the thought's gone through his mind I never would have hit that shot with my other clubs so just that little bit of doubt And but he's a, you know, he's a flashy swinger, his swing looks tremendous but I'm not a good enough technician to really understand the way he swings but my bet is that a great teacher like Dale Lynch would say, well, it's a great swing when it's on, but when it's off, it's mm. going to be a long way off. So perhaps it's just a long way off. I'm not sure. But but it's, it's always a dangerous thing to change ball, driver, three-wood, putter, irons, all in one hit. That's uh, a dangerous thing to do. And it's never worth the money. I mean, I don't care. You know, Graham McDowell said the other day that what he's saying is not up for life financially. I mean, are we serious? Rory wasn't <laughs> before he changed to Nike. I mean, you know, it's a, that's a ridiculous notion that you would, you know, I suppose some guys think $100 million is important, but when it's your career and it's how you play, it's, and you're going to finish up with a billion dollars anyway, perhaps, and it, it just isn't that important. It's just not worth the aggravation. It seems silly. Clates, in this modern age, is that still true, though? Are not the Nike clubs that he is carrying now just his titleless clubs with a different stamp on them? Surely that is how that deal would have unfolded. He would have given them his old clubs and said, listen, this is what I've always, you know, which are probably just a copy of what he played with as a kid. That was always the talk about Woods, that it didn't matter what brand name he had on the clubs in his bag. They were just his old Mizunos with a different stamp. Surely the, the Nike clubs must be exactly the same as the Titleist ones, would they not? Like the ball would be different, but the clubs, I don't surely. Know the an- I don't know the answer to that question. Rory's the only guy who knows the answer to that question. I mean, whether they all come out of the Mayura factory in Japan, who knows? I mean, that's, I mean, Norman famously played with McGregor clubs that were stamped with Cobra, so Rory wouldn't be the first one to hmm. be playing with clubs that aren't what they're supposed to be. But he's using the driver and the ball and the putter and different wedges, and you know it's a massive change to make 
for a guy who clearly plays with great feel and flair and it doesn't take too much to change that the feel of the equipment for your game to go off and people you know people are saying that well you can replicate anything well perhaps you can but Miller wrote about it in his book and he said I could play with my Wilsons and hit them the same as the McGregor's off the fairways but if I got it on a downhill lie out of the rough into the wind it just didn't react the same so it's that intangible stuff that when you get on a golf course and you've got certain specific shots and, and you know how your old clubs reacted it's fine to be hitting the same shot off flat lies on perfect fairways but you get in that real life situation and does the new club react exactly the same as the old one? And even if it does, if you're not confident that it necessarily does, it's such a confidence game, isn't it, Clates? Especially when you play like McElroy, I suppose, that, that maybe that's that's the X factor. If you're not confident about it, it doesn't matter whether it's exactly the same or not because as soon yeah. as you lack confidence, you struggle to hit the shots. Huggy Shack asked me this morning, and I think it's an extremely good question, would Rory have switched to Nike under Chubby Chandler? Well, I, 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 now, now don't misrepresent my question. <laughs> oh, Sorry. My qu- now, a lot of people at, at Riviera, uh, at, at the Northern Trust Open, were talking about Rory's switch. And not that he made the switch to Nike as much as why did he make this switch where the entire bag goes from what he was using to a, a full bag of Nike. And I, what I wanted to know was, was somebody, would somebody like Chubby representing him who played the game have been more savvy to either build into a contract, um, uh, the, the option to kind of break in uh, the club slowly, or or would Chubby have been somebody who would have been cognizant of the what has happened or could happen that we're now seeing, where a full switch to everything, including putter, driver, and ball, uh, can backfire? Mm. Great question. Huggy, what do you reckon? Well, it's a nice theory, and it very well may be true, but um, in my experience of dealing with Rory, um, I've never, ever not been impressed by how much that kid knows about golf. He's extremely clever when it comes to the to the game and knowing what's best for him. And I'd be very surprised if he didn't make this decision all by himself, Whether no matter who his manager was. I mean, I'm sure Chubby would have... As you, as Jeff said, rightly says, Chubby would have whispered in his ear about the the dangers, the obvious dangers of um, switching every you know fourteen clubs in the bag. And I'm not sure that uh, Connor Ridge um, would know that. I'd like to think he does, but I don't know him well enough to know whether he would know to to say that very same thing to Rory. But Rory, there's two possibilities here: either Connor Ridge didn't say to Rory the dangers of this, and Rory didn't know himself. Or Rory is cocky enough to think that it doesn't make any difference. He's the best player in the world and he can play with anything. But, you know, I'm reassured in a way that uh, in this modern world where the clubs are made to all these different specs and all the rest of it way over my head that that feel and, you know, confidence and all the rest of it is still such a big part of the game. You know, that's that's reassuring going forward, isn't it? And you can't just buy a game off the shelf. Oh, sh- Even Huggy. if you are the best player in the world. Huggy, sure, sure, of course you can. There's heaps of people selling it. You just save <laughs> it a golf magazine. Quiet. And that's exactly, exactly right. Um, <sighs> interesting, Huggy, if you look at the way Woods went to Nike, much slower process, wasn't it? In fact, it was, wasn't was until the huge downfall that he put the Nike putter in the bag. You, I never saw that 
coming. And obviously, I don't think if if 2009 hadn't happened, I don't know whether we ever would have seen the Nike putter in the bag. But it took him a lot longer, didn't it? He he he, he first oh. started with the Irons. I think it was only in 2000. He, 2000, he went to the ball, and then the Irons a couple of years later. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm, I I agree with Jeff. I mean, I, I think that that Rory's made a mistake if he did agree to you know the all, all fourteen. I think he, at the very least, should have given himself the option mm. of being able to to switch. As I mean, he, look, we all know what we're talking about here. There's only about three or four clubs in the bag that really matter. I mean, the the middle club, the irons, are just hardware, really. Mm. I mean, it's the driver, the putter, and a couple of wedges are the only clubs that that make any difference to these guys. Certainly. The, Top level. I mean, it, it makes no difference whatsoever. Here's here's another secret for the average, you know, hacker. I mean, it doesn't make any difference what they're playing with. If you've got a terrible technique, you're never going to be able to play anyway. So it doesn't matter. But uh, at Rory's level, as I say, it is surprising that that for whatever reason he didn't give himself the the option of playing with whatever wedges, putter, driver he wanted to play with. And what about the walk-off, Huggy? I'm intrigued. Like Clates, I think Rory <laughs> probably already regrets it. How He manages to dig himself out of every hole. He was fabulous after the Masters last year. Every time he's made a public misstep, he's always managed to correct it very quickly. What do you see coming with that? It, it seems pretty clear that the toothache was an afterthought. Well, yeah. I mean, the fact that his agent didn't know about the toothache was a bit of a giveaway that you know that that came along afterwards. Although I think uh, the Twitter photo from he, dinner the night before probably didn't case much <laughs> yeah, either. <laughs> that, that as well. But I mean, as well. I mean, I've, I've certainly been through the wisdom teeth experience, and it's and, and it's bloody agony. So I can sympathise if it is true. But he um, he's made a mistake. Look, I was twenty three once, and I mm. I did some daft things when I was twenty three, and I don't want to come across as an apologist for this guy and I've had people already say to me this if this had been Tiger you'd have been all over Tiger for this and that but what people forget is that Tiger had people apologizing for the first 10 years of his career almost everybody did he got away with anything and everything until the you know the scandal hit he gave, us he, what, he gave us what we wanted, Huggy, which is what Rory's yes. done. If they give, if yes, they give us exactly. what we want, we'll forgive them anything, won't we? The the problem, the, the one thing I would say about Rory is that I don't think he'll make the same mistake twice. I don't think he's he's clever enough to not do that. No, and Clates, he's a genuinely good, clever, intelligent, thinking human being, isn't he, Rory? I think he's a fabulous world number one in that sense. I, you know, people started comparing him to Tiger. I don't think he's got the same game as Tiger by any stretch and proved by this stretch and the stretch last year that you mentioned where he misses cuts. When it's bad, it can be bloody awful with Rory. We never saw that with Woods. But in all other aspects, he's a great uh, world number one to have representing the game, don't you think? Oh, he's, and he's tremendous to watch play golf. That's what I care about. He's brilliant to watch play and- He's a, he's a great-looking kid, and, yeah, he's, he's terrific. I mean, I mean, the most, you know, the game couldn't wish for someone better, really. No. Apart from Jeff Ogilvy, of course. Well, I was just going to say, who, who, look, how's he going this morning? I haven't had a look at the scores this morning. Uh, doing right. he's, I'm just looking at the scoreboard here. He's four off the lead at the turn. Oh, good on you. Yeah, no, uh, and let's not refer to the that awful stretch of holes that we won't name. Shackelford, before we uh, leave the Rory thing, what do you make of the, the Tiger-Rory bromance? This is the most bizarre thing that I think I've ever seen. What's going on there? What do you think? What is Woods playing at? Because I suspect he's driving it, and this is a very unusual relationship for Tiger Woods to enter into. Uh, It is, but it's also good for his image. Uh, It's good for his um, association with Nike. Um, I think it's all positive. I I don't think he has any... uh, uh, I, I mean, I think that's what he gains from it, and um, and he obviously likes uh, Rory as a person. Tiger has shown that if he likes somebody, uh, 
he will uh, play practice rounds with them or, or what have you. But he's never liked um, anybody good before Shaq. <laughs> he's only ever liked no. blokes that he could beat. No, and that is the fascinating thing and, and uh, why we all probably hope that there comes a day when uh, they meet on the first tee of a major and, and uh, we get to see if Tiger it goes into uh, 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 you know game face mode and uh, barely looks at him when he shakes his hand and that kind of thing. I, I think Tiger's kind of uh, passed a lot of that. Uh, I think he's gotten older and... And I mean, just watching him at Torrey Pines this year. Uh, of course, he was playing with a couple of people who had, who are in a totally different league. But uh, and the and the pace of play was was just so awful that he had to do something to kill the time. But I think um, I think it's just a sign that he's a, a, a he's more mature. Um, and I don't really think there's anything too uh, 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 too much to read into it, really. I think it's uh, just he, he probably just likes the guy, and it's good. For, he knows it's good for business to uh, treat him nicely. Yeah, I, I find it all a bit confronting and strange. But anyway, best of luck. to It him is strange. No, yeah. there, there's no question. It's strange because of the tiger we know, hmm. um, and and just knowing that the uh, the ego's involved. But I think that just speaks to Rory being an, uh, a very different uh, uh, top player. He's he's. Uh, uh, pretty humble and, and uh, very accessible and uh, very likable. So it, it, it may just be as simple as that. As Huggy once put it, Shaq, you just want to pat him on the head and give him a wee sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It, which, is, which is fabulous stuff. Uh, enough about uh, enough about those who make too much money playing this silly game. Clates, I wanted to come to you about this. Announced during the week here in Australia, the Australian PGA Championship after 11 years up at Coolum. Uh, thanks to the dinosaur and the new owner up there who seems difficult to work with. Moving homes, going to a golf course that I don't think has been mentioned in a top 100 list of anything ever, the Royal Pines Resort on the golf course. It's a, it's pleasant enough as a resort experience, I guess. It's very wide, very flat, doesn't present a lot of strategic challenges. What, were your, what was your take on the, the PGA's announcement about going to Royal Pines and the announcement that apparently the course owner has $5 million to spend uh, turning it into a better golf course over the next three years so that it'll be up to the challenge of the championship. I do the RACV own it, so I declare my conflict. We work for them. We've rebuilt two courses for them. So so far. Oh, be careful, so far. be careful. Oh. So um, I'm not going to be publicly critical of the RACV, <laughs> except to point out the obvious that if you do go down the list of the top 100 courses in Australia in both magazines, Royal Pines is not in there. So it's clearly a deal done for the money. And I think the club and the local council and the government thought that the Gold Coast was a good place to play the PGA Championship. So it's another example really of the world's PGAs taking tournaments to venues not for the architecture but for the money, i.e. the Belfry and PGA National and many other. We can look at the European venues for the Ryder Cup. So it's just another example of the commercial reality of the game winning over the what's best for the uh, what's best for the game would be my argument. You know, I think that I happen to be old-fashioned enough to think that we were much better off playing the Irish Open at Port Marnock for four hundred thousand pounds than we were at Mount Juliet for five hundred thousand pounds. But every other single pro on the tour looked at me like I was completely mad, except Greg Turner. Except Greg Turner. So, uh, so you know, the reality of the professional game is for the guys who play, 
All they care about is the size of the check they get on Sunday night. They don't care about what's best for the game or what's more interesting architecturally. It's take me to a venue where, one, it secures the future of the championship, which is what the PGA are arguing. And it's, and it's always been a difficult championship to manage. It's gone all over the country in, in the 40 or I first saw the PGA in 1968, so I've you know, watched it for more than 40, 40 years. And, it, and it's gone all over the place for pretty valid commercial reasons to some pretty ordinary golf courses. And the one golden period for the PGA was the five-year stretch from 78 to 82 when they played at Royal Melbourne. And they had Halo and Graham Mars, Seve, Sam Torrance and Stuart Kim win the championship. That was when the PGA was a truly great championship in Australia and it hasn't really been at that level since. And my argument would be it's that, that's because it was at a great golf course. Mm. You, you're dissing the halcyon days of Riverside Oaks. Clates, I'm joking, of course. I just... On a, uh, yeah, I, mean, I mean, that was the ultimate sellout, really. You know. Well, it had a helipad, didn't it? Wasn't that the point? It had a helipad so Norman could chop her in? That was... Well, it was, a, it was a dreadful golf course in the middle of nowhere. And, <laughs> yeah, but... Um, but, but the guy who owned it put the money up. Yeah, I'm a member there, by and, the way, so I must declare my interest at <laughs> <laughs> Riverside Oaks. Um, off that point, though, more broadly speaking, though, Clates, um, there is a genuine impact for the game, is there not, if golf is not taken to the best venues? When you put it on as a showcase, and this is the point that Greg Turner makes, it's fine for the pros to say they'd rather play for more money and they'd play at a pitch and putt if necessary, if the purses were bigger. But for the, the broader position of the game and, 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 and to make the game attractive to people and to, make, you know, we're all big on grow the game. I'm not so big on that, but the idea of grow the game or get people interested in the game, isn't isn't it important that, that the game goes to interesting venues to produce interesting golf? Well, I think it's critically important, which is why you know, I made the point about Royal Melbourne. That was when the PGA was a great championship and it, and, and it really hasn't been since because it's gone to substandard courses that aren't interesting. So in, in the eyes certainly of the Australian public, the Masters and the, and the, and the Open are, are, are tournaments that hold more emotional attraction to the golfing fan because they go to the better or better and or best courses. Which upsets the PGA no end, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but they make their bed and they lie in it. So, you know, I, I mean, obviously I think it's critically important that golf goes to the best and most interesting venues. It's why as great as the Ryder Cup is, imagine how great the Ryder Cup would be at Muirfield and St Andrews and Birkdale and Lithum and St George's as opposed to the Clay Club and Celtic Manor and Glen Eagles and Paris National and the Belfry. I mean, it's you can't imagine how much better that event would be. God forbid Dubai at some point, possibly Clates. There's been talk of that in the past, taking it to the Middle East, which it just just chills the blood to everything. But I must declare an interest. I do a bit of work for the PGA as well. Should you get the gig to do the work at Royal Pines, Clates, can it be turned into a worthy golf course for the PGA, keeping in mind that day-to-day it caters to the resort guest who is used to a golf course where you don't lose a ball for a start? Well, not before this year's tournament, but I mean, all, all the talk, I mean, Wayne Grady came out and a few others who who's he's, he's pitching for the job, saying that, you know, we need to make the golf course harder. The, the, the CEO of the PGA came out and said, we need to make the golf course harder. We'll move the tees back and we'll grow the rough. Well, which begs the question, why spend $5 million upgrading the golf course when you don't need to spend $5 million? If you, if you want to make it harder, you just need to grow the rough. Make the fairways 25 yards wide and grow the rough a foot high. The, the winning score will be five or six under par. So... so for me, those who argue that it's about making the golf course more difficult completely miss the point. It's about 
the, the reason it's not in the top 100 in Australia is not because it's too easy. The reason, the reason it's not in the top 100 in Australia is because it doesn't have one interesting strategic challenge in the whole of the 18 holes. So it's not about making the golf course harder. It's about making it more, more interesting to play. Mm. And it's actually had some pretty entertaining women's events. It hosts the uh, the ladies' masters. There. It has done for a long time, and uh, they've had some really interesting and 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 uh, compelling finishes to that tournament on a golf course. As you say, that doesn't have much well, challenge. That, that's true, but I mean, some of the most compelling finishes in the Ryder Cup were at the Belfry. Yeah, exactly. So, so you can manufacture a compelling finish on a, down a road if you have to, but it's about making the game more interesting and more fun. And and for me, that's what the resort should be doing anyway. Mm. I mean, not making you know the last thing you want to do is make the golf course harder for the people who play the resort. Make it more fun. Mm. Make it more interesting. Make it so you got to think more about how you play the game. Well, hopefully, with a bit of luck uh, for your sake, Clates, you you get the chance to do just that. Huggy, on your several trips to Australia, have you been to the Royal Pines layout there? Or did you did you hear this news during the week, and what was your take? Uh, well, I'm not familiar with the golf course, obviously, but all it needs to be said is that in all the times that I've been to Australia, which is quite a few now. I never once went to the PGA Championship. <laughs> well, not even up there at Coolin. You should have gone this year. The dinosaur apparently was quite impressive. I didn't see it firsthand, but they did say it was uh, it was quite impressive. Well, uh, we'll see what unfolds with that. Shaq, did you have any thoughts? I know the PGA of America has uh, felt your ire in the past for this sort of thing. Can the PGA of Australia expect the same if you ever need to comment on this? Well, it's it's I've written uh, ad nauseum about uh, venues and the quality of golf you get and <clears throat> yeah, it just comes down it, it always comes back to money I mean look at the match play event uh, in Tucson that's, that's, people love that event but I and I always say but could you imagine if they actually played a golf course that was suited to match play that had atmosphere uh, where, where the crowds could be engaged and, and, and all that kind of thing and, and most people just kind of look at you like you're you're nuts, but uh, it's it's hard to convey to people until they actually see it, uh, the role that good architecture plays in, in any kind of tournament, mm. um, but especially match play. Yeah, that, um, that match play venue was a fabulous press conference venue, though, Shaq, as we saw. Very successful <laughs> press conference and television appearance made there. So whilst the match play might not have been particularly... On that point, actually, Shaq, would, uh, would Fincham have made his announcement had it been Woods v. McElroy in that final? I very much doubt it. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm guessing not. Yeah, so Mayhan, Mayhan Kuchar, have, if they didn't know before, they're now well aware of their position within the game and on the uh, on the PGA Tour, no doubt. Gents, I think that should just about do us for this episode of State of the Game. It's been fabulous to have you all aboard, as always. Mike Clayton down in Melbourne, thank you. Thank you, Rod. And Jeff Shackleford over there in the States. Great to catch up with you again. All right. Thank you, Rod. And always fabulous to get the thoughts of John Huggan from Scotland. Huggy, thank you, my friend. Thank you. And that wraps it up for this episode of State of the Game. Thanks for tuning in. Do hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back in the next couple of weeks with another edition of State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.